Well, good evening. Very warm welcome to all of you here tonight. And I know there's a good number watching online, so it's good to have you joining us uh, as well. And if you're a visitor, uh, it's good to have you with us. I hope you feel a very warm welcome with us this evening. Uh, This evening, uh, our pastor John is continuing in our series in 2 Corinthians. And we're looking at 2 Corinthians 7 with the title, Real Change at Corinth. Real change at Corinth. So we're looking forward to hearing more about that a bit later. Uh, Just a couple of brief notices. Uh, First one, there's a fellowship tea. So on 7th of November, which is a Sunday, there's a fellowship tea. uh, 5pm prompt, um, just after a communion service. Uh, All the info is on a sheet in the foyer. Uh, so if you're not sure, do read it there, and it'd be great if you could sign up as well to say that you're coming. Uh, everyone's welcome, uh, so feel free to put your name down and come along. Um, you don't need to bring food, uh, but there's a suggested £1 donation. And just to say as well that after this evening, God willing, we're hoping to have refreshments. Um, the plan is to have them outside, obviously it is weather permitting, but the forecast looks good, so hopefully that'll be okay. Sorry to those of you online, you have to sort your own refreshments. Well, it'd be good to sing, start our service this evening. Lord, I come before your throne of grace. I find rest in your presence and fullness of joy. I wonder if that's how you come this evening as we come into God's house. So let's stand and sing together.
Well, we're going to have our main prayer this evening in two parts. Uh, so we're going to pray now, and uh, we're going to use Colossians 1 uh, to guide us and help us in our prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and Lord, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to pray to you. Lord, I pray that you would set our minds to pray to you now. And Lord God, as as Paul says in Colossians 1, Lord, I pray uh, that you would fill us with a knowledge of your will. Lord, in all spiritual understanding. Lord, I pray that we would know you more and more. Lord, so that we would walk in a, a manner worthy of you. Lord, we know we cannot do that by ourselves, however hard we try. Lord, there is no way that we can please you by ourselves. But Lord, with your help, we can. Lord, I pray that we would be fruitful in our lives, that we would be fully pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that our lives would be filled with good works. And Lord, that as we live, Lord, that we would know you better and better. Lord, that we would grow more and more. Lord, we pray that we would be strengthened. Lord, as Paul says, strengthened in your glorious might. So that we can endure. And not just endure with, with patience, but Lord, endure with patience and joy. And Lord, Paul was a wonderful example of this. Lord, the, the trials that he went through, all the things that he lost in his life. And yet, Lord, still he had so much joy. And Lord, that is because he was strengthened by you. And Lord, we pray those same things that Paul prays for the Colossians. Lord, I pray that we would be thankful. Lord, the Bible tells us we've been born into the domain of darkness. And yet, Lord, now we are in the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord, we have an inheritance with the saints in light because of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, we've been transported into his kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be thankful. Lord, those of us who have been saved, Lord, may our hearts be so thankful tonight. Lord, we've been redeemed. We've been brought back by your blood. We've been forgiven. The slate has been washed clean. Lord, we thank you so much that Jesus wasn't just a carpenter. He wasn't just a normal man, although he was man, but he was also the image of the invisible God. Lord, I pray that when we think of Jesus, that is the Jesus that we will think of. The, the creator of all things, Lord, the one who hasn't just created all things, whether visible or invisible, uh, but Lord, he sustains us. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to realise that now in this evening service, that, that you are sustaining us, Jesus. You are holding us together. You are giving us life. Lord, I pray that we would be in awe with who you are. Lord, you are the, the firstborn over all creation. Lord, the most important. Lord, I thank you so much as well. Lord, that you are the head of the church. Lord, what a, what a head to have. 
What a leader to have. Lord, that is such an encouragement. Lord, is sometimes we look at the church and it, it looks frail. Oh Lord, I pray that we'd be encouraged that Jesus is the head of the church. Lord, I pray for persecuted Christians around the world who struggle, who maybe sometimes find it hard to see is Jesus really in control. Oh Lord, I pray that they'd be encouraged. Yes, Jesus is the head of the church. He knows what he's doing. He's in control. He will have the victory. However um, distant it may seem, however impossible it may seem, Lord, we thank you that Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. And that we know as Christians that because Jesus rose from the dead, so we will too. Lord, we thank you for that certainty. And I pray that that would be an encouragement to us. And Lord, as John this morning was talking about those who are are getting near home, their spiritual home, Lord, I pray that that would be a wonderful encouragement to them. Lord, that because Jesus rose again, we know that we too will. Lord, we thank you that we've been reconciled to God through Jesus. And Lord, that he has dealt with the debt that we have. Lord, the devil can no longer accuse us anymore because our debt has been taken away. And I thank you so much for that. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to grow in faith, to be established in faith as Paul was. Lord, help us to be like that. So Lord, we thank you for this wonderful passage in Colossians 1 that we've been able to pray through now. And Lord, I pray that you would answer those things for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians now. Uh, But before we get to uh, 2 Corinthians 7, which we will read uh, in a few minutes' time, uh, we're going to first read 2 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 4. Uh, And then verses 12 and 13. And these verses just give a little bit of background information to chapter 7, which is why uh, John's asked me to read them. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now skipping on to verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And then chapter 7, which we'll be looking at later, uh, picks up uh, from where verse 13 has just finished. We're going to sing our second song now. Uh, It's a confessional hymn. Uh, We haven't known God, we haven't loved God, we haven't served God, we haven't feared God as we should.
And really this hymn is a bit of a prayer for God's help in all of this. We have not known you as we ought, nor learned your wisdom, grace and power. The things of earth have filled our thoughts, mere shadows of the passing hour. Lord, in our minds the truth renew and make us wise in knowing you. Let's stand and sing.
Well, we're going to pray again, and we're going to pray some of those things that we've just been singing, and then we're going to praise God and have some prayer requests for God. So let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to know you more. Lord, we've been thinking in that hymn uh, of the things of earth that fill our minds. And Lord, sometimes uh, there are important things. Sometimes we need to think about things. Sometimes things are urgent. Uh, But as the hymn said, so often those things are trifling little things. Lord, small things, unimportant things. And they take up our minds and they take up our energy. And Lord, the, the problem is, Lord, that they replace much more important things. And Lord, often they replace you. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. Lord, I pray that we would live our lives, as it said at the end there, longing to uh, be ready to see your face. Lord, we look forward to that day, but Lord, make us more and more ready. Help us to, to use the time. Lord, may we think about you. May we think about others. Lord, help us to get our priorities right. Lord, in all the busyness of life, Lord, I pray for those with families especially, Lord, you know so often that those with families, there is so much to do, so many distractions, um, so many important things. Lord, help them somehow to find time, somehow to prioritise. Lord, I pray that there be a support to each other as well in the church. Lord, that they be able to share wisdom on how to do these things. Lord, I thank you so much for... Um, a passion for life, which is hoping to sort of properly start next Easter sort of time. Lord, I thank you that it's not just a local thing, but a nationwide thing, where people want to make Jesus known to those around them. And Lord, I pray, Lord, as, as plans are already um, underway in, in many places, uh, Lord, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would bless those plans. Lord, I pray uh, for Crowborough. Lord, it's a town that many of us live in. Lord, I pray for those towns that uh, we live in if we don't live in Crowborough. Lord, you know that there's often a real love. Lord, I pray that there'd be more of a love for the people that we live near, for the people that we're with, for the people that we uh, bump elbows with as we, we go shopping or, or walk around. Lord, give us a real love for them. Give us a love for Jesus that makes us long to, to tell people about Jesus. Lord, I pray that that would be very successful, Lord, for your kingdom and for your glory. Lord, I just want to say thank you so much for blessing Roger and Ruth. Lord, many years of married life, Lord, we thank you so much for that. We thank you for the blessing that they've been to each other, but also to us. Lord, we thank you so much for their love and their loyalty and their service. And Lord, we could go on. But Lord, we we pray that you would richly bless them. Thank you for the blessings you have poured on them. Lord, may they know you more and more. Lord, may they bless us more and more. We thank you for them. Lord, we thank you so much for the work of Connect as well. Uh, Lord, down on the Alderbrook estate, Lord, we we thank you for it. It happened last Monday. Lord, we pray that, that you would bless the efforts of those who serve. Lord, you know their heart for it. Lord, such a desire for that um, that estate to know you. 
And Lord, do bless them, I pray. And Lord, we know how much you love children. So Lord, do work in them. Lord, we just pray for the half-term holidays as well. Lord, we, we pray that it be a good break for those who are able to get away, those who are having time off. Lord, physically, mentally, spiritually, Lord, I pray that, Lord, it would be a good, a good break. For many, it's a necessary break. And Lord, I just pray as well for those uh, with COVID or those who are isolating. Uh, Lord, it's a pretty miserable time to get it, especially with half-term coming up. Um, Lord, I pray that you would keep them well. Uh, as well as possible, uh, do be with them. And Lord, sometimes life is confusing. Lord, we thought about that this morning with Abraham. Lord, I pray that you would give them Abraham-like faith um, in all they do. And Lord, may that be the same for all of us, Lord, in all our different situations. So Lord, we do pray that you'd be with us tonight as well. Lord, as we look now at uh, 2 Corinthians 7, I pray that you'd help us as we listen to it and then help John as he speaks. Lord, I thank you for the prep and the prayer that he's put into it and I pray that it'd be very useful for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to do that now. We're going to read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And then after that, we'll sing so, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. 
And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. So reads 2 Corinthians chapter 7, God's word, and we're looking forward to John explaining that in a few moments. We're going to sing now another song. Uh, you, O Lord, have searched and known me. It's a, a song that's based on Psalm 139. Obviously, Psalm 139 is in the Old Testament. It's a slightly different context. But it's about David uh, wanting to know God more, about understanding how much David is known by God as well, and, and a real sense of David wanting justice in the world. So let's stand and sing, and then John will come and speak to us.
I wonder what your attitude to change is like. Uh, some people can't cope with change, are unsettled by change. Some people love change. Others are change averse. Perhaps it varies a little bit with background, uh, with temperament, with age, our attitude to change. What about personal change? Change in our lives, change in our conduct and behaviour, outlook and attitudes. You know, a Christian ought to be open to personal change. Have you ever thought about that? A Christian should be open, on the lookout for really, personal change. A key theme in the Bible is repentance. And repentance really means change, a change of mind, that leads leads to a change of direction in life. Starts at the beginning of the the Christian life, repentance. John uh, the Baptist ministry was a preaching of repentance. The first uh, public words of Jesus in the Gospel uh, of Mark is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. The message that we're to take on to others, according to the end of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24 and verse 47, is this, that repentance and forgiveness should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So it's the start of the Christian life, that change, that repentance but repentance is not a one-off thing. It's not a done and dusted thing. It is an ongoing thing in the lives of believers. Ongoing change, ongoing repentance. Perhaps you've heard of the 95 Thesis uh, banged on the door at Wittenberg. Well, most of us don't know much about what those 95 are. But this is the first, number one. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, Matthew 4.17, he willed or wanted the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That was Martin Luther's first point. Ongoing repentance. Now sometimes there is major change that's necessary. A serious error in our lives, there's backsliding, there's something very dangerous occurring. It was a bit like that at Corinth. They were in a dangerous situation, as someone was against Paul and his gospel, they were siding with him, uh, it would lead to all sorts of bad consequences as they ditched the gospel. This was a dangerous situation, a major situation which needed change. It can be major things. But it can be constant things, if you like. They might seem smaller things, more ongoing things, minor things. And as a a Christian, we then start to see things clearer and we're convicted again by the Holy Spirit. We see things in a a new life. We start to feel uncomfortable with uh, things that are happening in our lives or our thoughts or our motives or our words or our actions. So it might be, say, selfishness. 
on Friday, uh, Beth, our, our daughter coming back from uni, her train was delayed. She was already late. And I had more concern for how hungry I was for an hour's delay in my dinner than for her at the end of a, a long journey, and especially when she had a cold as well. And I had to repent of that selfishness. It might be impatience. So later in the evening, I felt myself a bit impatient with my wife in responding to my question. Probably the other way round normally, but I felt myself impatient that she wasn't responding to my question when normally perhaps it's not me responding to her question. And I had to repent of the impatience that I felt. Perhaps it's self-pity. Perhaps it's discontentment. Perhaps being too taken up with possessions. Perhaps it's a lack of reverence. Perhaps it's wandering eyes. Perhaps it's a sharp tongue. Let me give time to think. It's it's, it's his way into this chapter on repentance. I'm going to put some questions up. I'll leave a little bit of quiet for you to think about them in the light of the way we've introduced this. Have a think about these questions. Have I ever repented? Have I started? Is there a major error I need to repent of? Is there ongoing minor, minor in inverted commas, repentance in my life? Have a think. Well, a big concern for Paul had been the need for change at Corinth. Uh, That's one of the key things of this whole letter. Uh, One of the key things in our chapter. It will come up in our third point out of four this evening, and that is our main one for this evening when we get there. But we've got some lessons to learn in the build-up, so there'll be a challenge about repentance. But there's other things in the build-up, and one afterwards as well, which have more lessons in and explain more of the situation as we go through to Corinthians 7. And the first of this, then, up there already, is care and integrity. Verses 2 to 4 are really a, a bridge from where we were last time when we were in 2 Corinthians 7. Although the Corinthians seem largely on board with with Paul and with his gospel, um, there's some feet draggers. There's um, others that seem to need reassuring. And what Paul says in verses 2 to 4 should help them. He says, make room in your hearts for us, 
We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you, I have great pride in you, I am filled with comfort in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy." He wants them to be open to him as God's messenger, God's apostle. He reminds them about his behaviour to reassure them. Now the church in France, according to the, the BBC, has, it says, some 216,000 children, mostly boys, have been sexually abused by around 3,000 clergy in the French Catholic Church since 1950, a damning inquiry has found. That is absolutely appalling, isn't it? That is atrocious. Any, any life damaged in that sort of way at the expense of religious people is, is a tragedy. You can hardly believe the numbers and the scale of it. How shameful. But it was certainly not like that with Paul. He had not wronged anyone. He had not corrupted anyone. He had not exploited anyone. He was genuine. Make room in your hearts for us, chapter 7, verse 2. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. He was committed to them. His joy and his comfort and his concern was all bound up with them and their welfare and them doing well. The apostle was a man of care and integrity. And if you're responsible in some way for others, you can use the Apostle Paul as a a model. It would be a good thing if you were able, uh, imperfectly, yes, but to to model a Christ-likeness and a bit like the Apostle in never corrupting, never wronging, never exploiting in your responsibilities. And if you are on the receiving end of teaching and influence, then if the influence is of this sort that Paul says, then you're on to a good thing and thank God for it. And many of us can look back, I can look back and thank God for the influence I came under of people who are concerned for me in a genuine way, in a pure way, in a good way, in a healthy way. And they did not wrong me, and they did not corrupt me. So you have care and integrity in this chapter, talked about to reassure them. And his commitment and his care for them is shown in the next few verses as we go on to our second thing, which is comfort through Titus. Verses 5 to 7, comfort through Titus. There's an extra strand here, which I hope might help some others who are listening in or here this evening. Paul had been at a low ebb, and it may help you to realise this. 
He wasn't an apostolic superman with no difficulties. Uh, None of us are Christian supermen or Christian superwomen with no difficulties. It might surprise you to, to see, to read what Paul says about his situation in verse 5. He says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. This is picking up from where we uh, read earlier, Mark read from chapter 2. In many ways, chapter 2.13 then jumps to chapter 7 verse 5. That's, you wouldn't call it parenthesis because there's so much important things in there, but the flow of it jumps from one to the next. We left 2.13 with him saying this. My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And then, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So, the Apostle Paul was restless in his spirit. And when he got to Macedonia, probably to Philippi, he was... Restless in his body. He couldn't settle. Perhaps he couldn't sleep. He was uh, stressed and afflicted. He was downcast. He had a, a touch of the blues. And what was on the outside for Paul? Fighting. Threats. And Paul, what's on the inside? Fierce. It's disturbed, especially about how things are going at Corinth. So you have a real insight into Paul's life and his heart, and maybe that helps you, because actually, yeah, you're restless sometimes in body or in spirit, or sleepless, or anxious, or stressed, or fearful, or concerned about the threats. But the the fidgety, if you like, the, the butterfly tummied apostle with a touch of the blues gains comfort. And I love the way it's described in verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. It reminds us that God is a comforting God. God is a comforting God. A lovely description we had at the very outset of the letter in chapter 1 and in verse 3 where it said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And you think of that great chapter, Isaiah 40, about the character of God, and it starts off, comfort, yes, comfort, my people, says your God. God is a God of comfort. That's good news for us if we're feeling like the apostle felt. That's a gem for you to think about this evening. But here, and very often, he uses people. How does he comfort? Let's have a look again. 
but a God who comforts the downcast. He comforts the downcast. The God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus coming to Paul was God's means of comforting him. Have you found that? Often? That God has used individuals to be his vehicle and channel of comfort to you? Often the way? You think of that um, text or that timely visit or that walk over the forest or that coffee time with a Christian and it was, uh, it was a real tonic. They brought the, God used a person to bring the comfort of God to you. Which you're tempted to shut yourself in, in your concern, your anxiety, your lowness. Ah, you, you might be, you might be shutting out God's means of comfort. Don't, don't cut the Christians off. So God comforts this apostle through Titus. It's especially the news that he brought that was a comfort. Titus had been dispatched to Corinth. It seems as though he probably took with him the the painful letter that we heard about earlier. They needed to hear from Paul some things that would correct them that would restore their loyalties in the direction of God and his gospel. And uh, Titus was coming back with the, with the news of how they were getting on. And what was the news? Verse 7, And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still the more. Comfort through Titus. So now we move on to our, our repentance point. This is our, if you like, the major point. It's a slightly bigger font to emphasise that. Change that is genuine. Change that is genuine. Now, uh, good grief is a, 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 a coin of phrase, if you like, that um, some people use. Good grief. I mean, in some ways, it's a strange expression, isn't it? it? It's around there, and people, maybe you use it. Well, it, it describes what happened at Corinth. Good grief. We're talking about grief over doing wrong and realising it. That sort of grief. And there is, if you like, a bad grief and a good grief. There is a, a worldly grief. And there is a, a godly grief. There is a, a superficial repentance and there is a, a true and genuine repentance. And Paul is so comforted and relieved at what has happened at Corinth. And you can trace it through verses 8 to 11 if you've got it open or on in front of you. He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, 
Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. He was worried that it was a a short-term temporary grief. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, enjoy the pain inside them, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were, were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So at first he he feared that a a bad grief was going on, a short-term grief. They were sorry for a while, not leading to a change of, of heart. Uh, more of a remorse, we might a mere remorse, a mere remorse. And this can happen, can't it? You, you know that. So we get found out, so we feel a sense of shame and, and, and sorrow. We cause damage to others and, and to us, and we feel bad about some of the, the, the consequences of of it, if you like, and our reputation is marred, and, and we feel very sensitive about that. But sometimes it's not, it's not deep, it's not real, it's not godly, it's not towards God. I was uh, studying recently with somebody Psalm 51. I don't know if you've come across Psalm 51. If you're thinking about repentance, it's quite a good psalm to look at. It's David's psalm of repentance. I was struck again, uh, we were struck as we were reading it, how Godward his repentance is. He had um, done things which uh, damaged lots of people, far-reaching consequences. But when it comes to the heart of it, in verse 3, he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. You see, at the end of the day, he realised it was against God, and that was the big thing taking up his mind. Well, at, at Corinth, it was godly. It was godly repentance. And it, and it led to change. We looked at verse 11 briefly, if you remember, in our zeal studies. The change it leads to. What earnestness is godly grief has produced in you? What, what eagerness to clear yourself? What indignation? What fear? What longing? What zeal? What punishment? That is in dealing with the offence. Good grief. Good grief. Godly repentance. That's what we need. In the different ways we've been thinking about repentance this evening. Uh, J.I. Packer, maybe you've heard of him, he died recently, Christian writer of mainly the last century, in a a book called Passion for Holiness. He sums up true repentance with um, five five R's. Well, it's actually ten R's, because he gives them all um, an adverb, beginning with R as well. But we're going to keep it simpler this evening, just have the five R's. I think it might be helpful to 
to put them up. Let me put them up so that you can think through these. The five R's of repentance, according to him, and I think biblically you can ground this, recognition. So some of the, sorry, some of the words are slightly complicated. Recognition, but realising, knowing that something wrong has been done, stage one. Remorse. So that's a regret, a feeling of sorrow. So recognising it's done leads to a, an inner reaction. Sorrow towards what's happened. Uh, further, request or, or asking a request to God. Asking God for forgiveness. This is where faith comes into repentance. Expressing, seeking mercy from the one who is merciful, who has sent his son into the world to die on the cross. On the basis of that, we come to God, we ask, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And there's a, a fourth aspect, renunciation. That is, we, re, we renounce sin. We, uh, our mind and heart is against the sin that we've committed. Um, we try and get rid of it. We are against the sin. Renunciation. Renunciation. And then there's a fifth. Restitution, if appropriate. So, sometimes a true sorrow is requires there to be some making amends. It may be an apology. It may be restitution. Like Zacchaeus restoring those that he had wronged fourfold. So these are the, the different elements of, of true repentance. And you, you had it in the Corinthians. They realised it was wrong. There was a sorrow. Um, it was godly repentance, so it was asking for forgiveness. Um, there was a renunciation, a clearing of themselves. There was a restitution. There was making amends in their relationships with Paul. This was, real, this was the real deal. This was true repentance. Have we repented in terms of the direction of our life? Has there been genuine repentance? So, recognition, remorse, mere remorse is not adequate. It's not, real repentance isn't just covered by steps one and two. You think of Bible examples, Esau, if you know about what happened to Esau, even tears, Saul, Judas, some sort of sorrow but not real repentance. You can even go to request to some extent. You can be saying the the Lord's Prayer off pat, uh, how Mary's can be said or something. There can be words which are, are supposed to express some sort of sorrow, but, but recognition, remorse and, and mere words in and of themselves not meant is not true repentance. True repentance follows through with a renunciation in the mind and restitution if appropriate. So in, in the light of that, have you repented in the direction of your life? Begun to live for God? It, does there need to be repentance over that major lapse? That sin, which is a very 
dangerous aspect of your life currently and has been allowed to, to drift, heading in the wrong direction in a serious way, does there need to be a turning around like there was at Corinth? Is there a, an ongoing repentance? A challenge for us, isn't it? Of this sorts of things over, over our selfishness, over our impatience, over our self-pity, over our discontentment, over our lack of reverence, over us making too much of our possessions, over our wandering eyes, over our sharp tongue. So there was change that is genuine, real repentance. And it was even within a professing Christian church, it was necessary repentance, even for people who'd previously been baptised and said they were followers of Christ. Well, all this talk of repentance and grief and remorse may seem a little bit gloomy. Uh, so you might be surprised and perhaps relieved to come to our last point as we carry on through these verses, which is confidence and joy. Confidence and joy. Probably more emphasis on the joy in the passage, but confidence and joy in the last four or five verses. Ironically, that is what true repentance leads to. Confidence and joy. It puts you in a good place. True repentance puts you in a safe place. That's a joy and a comfort to others. It should be a joy and a comfort to you. It means you're going on well. It means you're back on track. That's a good place to be. It restores relationships, it's healthy, it's a blessing, it's fertile soil to grow and go forwards. And you might be surprised at how much joy there is in this chapter, a chapter on repentance. If you've got your Bible open, let let me take you to some verses, the end of verse 4. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. The end of verse Seven, so that I rejoiced still more. Verse nine, as it is, I rejoice. Verse thirteen, therefore we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Verse sixteen, the last verse, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. He did have confidence in them. He believed God's spirit had been at work in them. He was expecting good things to happen as a result of his letters. I think he told Titus that I am expecting things to go back on track with the, with the, with the group at Corinth. I think they will respond. He'd 
boasted that, if you like, to Titus, hence verse 14. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame, but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And that confidence clear in the last verse. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Think of the great parable of repentance. What would that be? The prodigal son. Parable of repentance. What is so weaved into it? Joy. Joy in heaven. Joy in the father's heart. Joy in the wayward son. Joy in the party of celebration. Joy everywhere except the field where the older brother is staying. Good things come from godly repentance. Bad things follow no repentance or a false repentance. Verse 10 puts it plainly, doesn't it? For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Maybe at the moment your life is the opposite of joy, That's inside there is a, a sadness, a difficulty. There may be lots of reasons for that. But maybe one of the reasons for that lack of joy, those serious struggles, is because there is no repentance. Because you've never turned around to start to follow Jesus. Or because there's no repentance over that major failing which is occurring in your life. Or because there's no many ongoing repentances over the things that the Lord is bringing to your attention. Maybe you fear what repentance will lead to. You're sort of caged in in your current situation not going forward in repentance because you're wondering, well, what will repentance lead to? It feels so risky. Well, here, I'm working these things through. I have their big sides of things. I don't want to polish over that. But here, repentance led to confidence, joy, fellowship, refreshment, Encouragement, a good direction, salvation, forgiveness, God's welcome. There's some well-worn cliches, aren't they? Usually come up come election time, usually by the opposition, whatever that opposition might be. It's time for change. What we need is real change. They're cliches. We treat them as such. But perhaps that is actually what is needed now in our lives. 
time for change, real change. Things happening in our lives like needed to happen and did happen with much blessing at Corinth. Well, may God make his word useful in our lives. I think I'll allow just a a little bit of time before we sing our last hymn. You might want to continue praying and thinking along the lines of those three questions. Well, let's have our last song. Um, I partly wanted to pick it this morning, but I ran out of options. And I thought it fitted in with tonight as well. It's the hymn Trust and Obey, slightly updated. You may know that in one of the original versions, as a, as a verse that you feel a bit uncomfortable with, it's quite right. So we've got a slightly updated one. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You'll see some links with what we looked at to do with Abraham as well this morning if you were here. Let's stand and sing.
So do stay behind outside for refreshments. If you want to join then, let us close now in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your searching word, and yet a word which searches and leads to comfort, joy and salvation. We pray that you might tailor it to our needs, for our good, for the blessing of others, and for your glory. We pray in Jesus. Amen.